Let's pray. Father and our God, Lord, we come before you again humbly, thanking you for your word, thanking you for your church, for the freedom and ability to gather together in this local body to praise and worship our God. Lord, we we ask that uh, as our pastor opens the word for us, that you would bless the working of his hands this week as he's prepared to preach it to us. We pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to open our ears and soften our hearts that we may hear and receive it. We pray, Lord, that it would indeed edify and sanctify and transform our minds. We pray that he would preach it boldly, that there would be only truth in it. And Lord, we again thank you. Uh, We are eternally grateful for your word. We pray that we never take that for granted. We pray all these things in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you. This time, last Lord's Day, I was standing in a backyard in a private home, uh, which is where a church meets in Cuba. Uh, all of the churches, particularly all of the Reformed Baptist churches, are illegal, and they gather uh, usually in private homes. They're not allowed to own church buildings and those kinds of things. And I was telling Gina this morning, you know, I wish I had an opportunity maybe once a month to preach to a translator. Uh, it, it sharpened me. And one of the advantages of preaching to a translator is you have to say a couple of sentences and then pause and let them translate and then say a few more. But there were many times working to a translator where I would say something and the translator would look at me and say, (laughs) and that was helpful because I often wonder, because I pray for, Paul prayed for clarity in the preaching. And so I pray that today, and I hope you will, will join me in praying that I will speak clearly as I ought to speak. Uh, We are, in in some ways, in some deeper water, and we're also in part two of a a treatment of a text in Mark chapter one. So if you turn with me to Mark's gospel, and and so I left this somewhat on a, maybe on a cliffhanger about two weeks ago, working through this, this question or this issue, the kingdom is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he begins his public ministry, recorded in the Gospel of Mark, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so I preached one sermon entitled, The Kingdom Has Come, and looking at the present reality of the kingdom. And then we were looking at it from a little bit different vantage point, the kingdom is coming. And so last week, as we worked through this text, verses 14 through 28, and I'll read that text here in a few moments. We, we ask this question, or I ask this question in the sermon, what authority does the kingdom possess? And, and as I read the text, you'll, hopefully you'll remember and, and you'll see for yourselves that the authority that, king, that, that Jesus demonstrates here is unlike anything anyone had seen before. I mean, he, he, the way he taught was not like the scribes. There was a uniqueness in his authority. He was able to declare the very mind of God. He was able to cast out a demon. Even the the evil spirits obeyed him. 
He had the authority to point to men in their ordinary vocations and say, follow me, leave your ordinary vocation, leave your lawful endeavors and come and follow me and bear witness of me. And he had authority over the fish. He says, I will make you fishers of men because I have the authority to cause fish supernaturally to come into your nets. And so we, we saw that in the text. And as I read it in a moment, you'll, be, you'll, re, you'll recall that. And then we asked the question, how is the, king, how is the kingdom governed? And the answer was that King Jesus exercises his power, his authority, his governance over the kingdom by his word and his spirit. And then the question that I left you with, and I, I, I warned you it was a little bit of a trick question. I left you with this question. How does the kingdom grow and expand? So that's our task today. How does the kingdom grow and expand? And it's a trick question. Let's read together Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, 14 through 28. And there are two questions that I want to consider today from this text. Should we seek to grow and expand the kingdom of God? Is that the imperative given to us individually or corporately to expand the kingdom of God? And then the second question is, how should we think and speak about the kingdom of God? So here, here is the word of God given to us, beginning at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him, and they were all amazed so that they question among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Thus the reading of God's word so let's, let's tackle our, our first question here. What duties do Christians have to grow the kingdom of God? Or to say it another way, what is a Christian's duty with respect to the kingdom? As either churches or as individuals, do Christians have a duty to grow the kingdom of God? 
Now think carefully before you answer. Think biblically before you answer. Before we answer that one, let's, let's ask maybe a preliminary question. How does the kingdom of God grow and spread? Or maybe to put a finer point on it, does the kingdom of God grow and spread? The answer might surprise you. The answer is no. No, it doesn't. The kingdom of God does not grow because the kingdom of God does not grow. It's not the duty of churches or Christians to grow the kingdom or to advance the kingdom. Is that a surprising answer to you? Maybe shocking to some of you, but it's true. Nowhere in the scriptures is the kingdom described as growing. Now, why is this? Now, think about our definition of the kingdom we've been working with. It's the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and lives of his people on earth and in heaven through Jesus Christ, the promised descendant of David, who will rule and reign forever. That's that's the kingdom definition we're working with. And the kingdom of God is defined in reference with respect to one thing, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The one in whom there is no variation of, or shadow due to change. It is not defined in reference to those who are inside the kingdom. See, we often confuse numerical growth with the growth of the kingdom. The kingdom of God just is. It doesn't grow according to our perception of its reach or its extent. It just is. And see, if we believe the kingdom can grow, then the flip side also has to be true. We have to believe the kingdom can contract or shrink because then we begin to think more geographically. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Several years ago, we had the opportunity to go to Alaska. We went to Denali National Forest. And according to our guide, it was an unusual day. We could actually see Mount McKinley or Mount Denali. We could actually see it. Uh, it it's so large, it creates its own weather and atmosphere, and ordinarily, it's covered with clouds. But we were able to see it, and, and Mount McKinley is the highest point in North America. It's over 20,000 feet above sea level. Mount Everest, of course, is the, the, the tallest mountain, but mountaineers actually make a distinction. They make a distinction between tallest and highest. Tallest is the distance from sea level, but highest is the distance from its base. So if you were to climb Mount McKinley, you would actually have to climb a full, more than a mile higher than if you climbed Mount Everest because it's from its base, it's much higher. What does that mean? Well, it means it, it makes a much more stark contrast to the scene around it. And on this particular day, way off in the distance, we were able to behold the majesty, the grandeur, the glory of this majestic mountain. But had we been there on the day before, under a shroud of clouds, would that mountain have been smaller? Or the next day, when maybe the view was even more clear than what we were able to behold, would the mountain have been larger? No, Mount McKinley just is. Such is the kingdom of God. 
It just is. Strictly speaking, the kingdom of God does not grow. The, the kingdom exists. This is why Jesus comes and declares the kingdom of God is at hand. It's present. But you're probably thinking, but, but people are added to this kingdom, so in one sense, it does grow, right? Well, that would be defining the kingdom according to the number of people in it, not in reference to its king. The kingdom of God is defined in reference to King Jesus only, not in reference to you or me. It's defined in reference to his power and dominion and authority, not in reference to the number of people whom he has brought into his kingdom. See, isn't this the mistake that King David made? See, David was aspired to take a census. And remember, Nathan the prophet warned David, don't do this, this is contrary to God's will. But David insisted, and he faced the rebuke and chastisement of God. Why? Because David sought to define the kingdom, not in reference to God, but according to the number of people in it. Don't we make the same mistake? Don't we think of the kingdom in that way? Well, you might be thinking, well, what about the parable of the mustard seed? Doesn't Jesus teach? Because he says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It may be compared to a mustard seed. It's, it's the smallest of all seeds, but then it becomes large enough that the birds of the heavens are able to rest in its shade. Isn't he teaching that the kingdom of God grows? I don't think that's the point of his parable. I think the point of his parable is that men view his kingdom as insignificant at the beginning. I mean, after all, what's the significance of 12 uneducated men and a dead Messiah? How significant could that really be? But Jesus is saying, but when I return, with all of my angels in glory, both men and angels will bow before the awesome grandeur and glory of my kingdom. Said so the kingdom grow? No, but men behold it in its full glory, not in its apparent insignificance. As we gather today with less than 100 people in a strip center in Conroe, Texas, there can be a temptation to think this is fairly insignificant. I mean, look around. I mean, as Paul said, there's not many of us noteworthy, not many of us of noble blood. There's not many of us who are eminent. And yet God has set his affection upon us as a people. And the world may view this as insignificant. We may be, may be tempted to view this as insignificant. But when God comes, when Christ returns in his glory, and from the world's perspective, the veil of the kingdom is fully removed, even angels will bow. Every knee will bow. The kingdom of God just is. It has no need to grow, no more than its exalted and eternal king needs to grow. Now, if you think this through, this has significant implications, doesn't it? Because there, there's a lot of activity done in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity, all about kingdom building. What if 
it's not our job to build the kingdom? What if it's not the mission of the church to grow, establish, build the kingdom of God? Now, it is correct to claim that the king adds citizens to his kingdom. This is Paul's message in Colossians, that he has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the dominion of God's own son. So it is certainly a fact that he adds citizens to his kingdom. But that's not the same as saying the kingdom grows because we define the kingdom with respect to the king. But here's the the follow-up question, though. So if, technically speaking, the kingdom of God does not grow, how should we think, then, and speak about the kingdom? How should we think, how should we speak about our duties with respect to this kingdom? As you hear the word of God read and preached, and as in your own homes, in your own private devotions, in your family devotions, you read the scriptures, tune your ears, train your eyes to notice the way in which the kingdom is described in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. Take note of the verbs especially that are used regarding the kingdom. Often we hear good and faithful Christians, and I've used the very same language, okay, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at, at other faithful believers, but we are called to humble ourselves in submission to the word of Christ, right? So think about the kinds of words that perhaps you have used, I know I have, to describe the kingdom. We will hear things about advancing the kingdom or building the kingdom or establishing the kingdom or growing the kingdom or, or something similar, but, but is that the correct way to speak about it? Not Exactly. There's one biblical scholar that gives a a helpful counterpoint to to that way of speaking. Listen to this quote. It's a little longer, but I think it's very helpful. The kingdom can draw near to men. See, listen to the the difference in verbs. The kingdom can draw near to men. It can come, arrive, appear, be active. God can give the kingdom to men, but men do not give the kingdom to one another. Further, God can take the kingdom away from men, but men do not take it away from one another, although they can prevent others from entering it. Men can enter the kingdom, but they are never said to erect it or build it. Men can receive the kingdom, inherit it, and possess it, but they are never said to establish it. Men can reject the kingdom, for example, refuse to receive it or enter it, but they cannot destroy it. They can look for it, pray for its coming, and seek it, but they cannot bring it. Men may be in the kingdom, but we are not told that the kingdom grows. Men can do things for the sake of the kingdom, but they are not said to act upon the kingdom itself. Men can preach the kingdom, but only God can give it to men. See, the kingdom is the outworking of the divine will. It is the act of God himself. It is related to human beings and can work in and through them, but it never becomes subject to them. The ground of the demand that they receive the kingdom rests in the fact that in Jesus, the kingdom has come into history. I found that helpful. 
but it may shift our thinking away from our human activity to direct us to open our hands to receive as a gift of God's grace rather than thinking it's something that we create or that it's something that's dependent upon our abilities or our methodologies or our wisdom or our creativity. Rather, it's something we receive. So if it's the fact that the kingdom does not grow, if we're not establishing the kingdom, we're not building the kingdom, then what is our response? What is our duty as citizens of the kingdom? What is incumbent upon us if we are not charged with building, establishing, growing, advancing the kingdom? What is our duty? I think there are two primary ways to think about our kingdom duties. Two primary ways. First of all, is to bear witness of the kingdom. Is to bear witness of the kingdom. Isn't this the substance of the Great Commission? And I'm going to paraphrase somewhat Matthew's Matthew's recollection, Matthew's recording of the Great Commission. Remember, Jesus begins the Great Commission with this declaration, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He is about to be He's about to ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of God, throned with majesty and splendor, and give it a name, the name Lord, a name above every name, a name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And on the basis of that fact, Jesus says to his disciples, his apostles, go therefore. I am sending you, and what am I sending you to do? To bear witness of the kingdom. To go make disciples means go bear witness that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And in order to be a citizen of that kingdom, you have to believe that gospel proclamation of the kingdom. You must believe that Christ has come. The Son of God has come in human flesh. That he's come for the purpose of saving sinners of reconciling men to God. Go to a lost world, Jesus says. Go to every nation and make disciples. Proclaim that I am king and that I have offered reconciliation with God in my name alone. Make disciples of those who believe in my name. Then baptize them. Baptize them in the triune name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Give them this public display, this public testimony of their citizenship in the kingdom of God. It is not baptism which makes them a citizen. It's the belief in the gospel of the kingdom that makes them citizens. But as we confessed earlier in our catechism, and as we will observe here in just a a few moments, we're going to see one brought into the very waters of baptism, symbolizing, signifying his death with Christ. Christ, his burial with Christ, and his resurrection up out of the grave with Christ to walk in newness of life. Jesus further says that as king of kings, I have the authority to command my people how they ought to conduct themselves, teach them all that I have commanded. See, this is kingdom language. And remind them, And remind yourselves that as king, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
at the end when I return and my kingdom will be revealed in all of its splendor and glory. That splendor and glory that even to us as believers is somewhat veiled in this moment, isn't it? We, we can't see the full splendor of the kingdom that we proclaim, of the kingdom in which we dwell. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, the apostles would soon begin to understand this very plainly. So Jesus gives them the Great Commission in, in Acts chapter 1, when we see the same event being recorded. The, the apostles are still somewhat confused, aren't they? They ask Jesus questions like, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom of heaven to Israel? They, they didn't understand fully, but at the, at the day of Pentecost, just as Jesus foretold, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them the Holy Spirit who would lead them into all truth. And that's why later on in 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul comes, and he understands by the Spirit of God what the Great Commission was all about. It was not about advancing some earthly kingdom. It was not about ruling the political spheres of this world. We don't need to do that now because Jesus is going to conquer them with an iron rod when he returns. Paul says the gospel ministry is an ambassadorship through which Jesus offers reconciliation with men to God through his own body. Paul says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. See, that's kingdom language. That's having been transferred out of one kingdom and into another. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All that is from God, who through Christ, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul concludes, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, this is kingdom language. Paul says, I serve as the ambassador of a king. The apostles together serve as the ambassador of a king. And Paul calls this an ambassadorship, a ministry of reconciliation that through the apostles is given to local churches. And that ministry perpetuates not through a pope, not through an apostolic succession, but through the apostolic teaching taught week by week by week on the Lord's Day to God's people gathered around this world to every tribe and nation and tongue and people. And God, through those ordinary men, through the weak things of this world that confound the strong, God makes his appeal. And the appeal is just be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, if you are not in the kingdom of God, what is your duty? Your duty is to believe the proclamation of the kingdom, to believe the gospel message that the king has indeed come. The eternal son of God assumed our human nature. He took on our flesh, dwelt and walked among us, bore our sin, 
In fact, more specifically, you must believe that he bore your sin. You must believe that he died for you. You must believe the certificate of debt that you owe to God was nailed to the cross, and Christ paid that on your behalf. In fact, that was the only way the debt could be paid. And having believed that, having beheld the glory of God revealed to you in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only reasonable response is to turn away from the sin which ensnares you. That's a response to the gospel. Be reconciled to God through the King of Kings and through the Lord of Lords. And so we have a duty to bear witness as a church, as a corporate entity, through our common resources and and shared gifts, we corporately have a ministry of reconciliation. We have the opportunity to declare to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to any who come through this door that Christ is king and that man is born by nature, by birth, at enmity, at odds, at war with this king. But he has offered terms of surrender. He has offered terms of peace. But there is only one offer, and it's through the body and blood of Jesus alone. And implore men and women and boys and girls to believe that. To rest their eternal destiny upon that proclamation. And then privately, as God gives opportunity, in your place of employment, in your homes, in your extended families, will you bear witness of this kingdom? As Peter speaks, and he speaks about living, having our conduct undefiled before the Gentiles, meaning before unbelievers, and living such a way that unbelievers will ask us the reason for the hope that is within us. And he says, glorify God in your hearts and be ready to give that reason. Because a king has come. And this king offered me reconciliation, and I believe that gospel, and he has changed me. And that offer is offered to all men and all women. Will you believe it also? And you have the great privilege of bearing witness to that fact. With your own children, will you bear witness to that fact? Daily, consistently. But there's another duty. We have first the duty of of bearing witness, since our duty is not to grow, expand, or establish the kingdom. Our first duty is to bear witness of it. The kingdom is, it is at hand. The king has come, and he's coming again. But our other duty is our own submission and obedience to this king, both privately and corporately. Because aren't we all capable of talking a good game? Aren't we all capable of reciting the edicts of the kingdom, of talking about this glorious king, but we don't obey him? We don't follow him. We don't submit ourselves to him. And again, this can be corporately and individually, starting at the corporate level. I mean, are we, are we intentional and self-conscious about ordering all that we do according to the word of our king? He's not left us 
in the dark as to how, for example, his church is to be ordered and organized. The language in our confession of faith, as you read through chapter 26, and I won't turn there this morning, but as you read through that, you'll notice a phrase that comes up a few times, according to the mind of Christ. According to the mind of Christ. And that's kingdom language. He has the right to rule. He is the head of the church. He is our prophet, priest, and king. As a church body, do we submit ourselves to our own desires and preferences, or do we submit ourselves to the word of God? Have we sought to, to have the government of the church, not according to human standards or, or human institutions, but governed according to God's decree? Is our worship ordered according to the, what the word of God tells us? Or do we say, no, we can worship in, what, in whatever ways we like, Whatever our preferences are, we can worship in those ways and God won't mind. Or do we say, no, God alone determines how he is to be worshipped and we submit ourselves to that because he is our king. This is not in my notes, it just comes to mind, but we studied in Sunday school uh, a couple of years ago the book of Esther. You know the story of Esther, she ends up married to the king. And Esther needed to go and speak to the king on behalf of her people. But even Esther, as his wife, feared for her life to go in the presence of the king without being summoned. But by God's grace and according to his providence, the king did extend to her the golden scepter and she was permitted to come into his presence and make her appeal. Even worldly kings demand a, a sense of awe and fear and you don't do whatever you wish to do in the king's presence. And yet how many churches, how many Christians, even with our own hearts, how many times are we tempted to think, I want to do things according to my own way. I want to worship God by my own preferences. I want to find a church that, that is, is shaped like I want it to be shaped rather than by the word of God. So see, corporately, we have to submit ourselves to this king. But individually, this comes up as well. Do you obey the king? Are you seeking to order your life in humble submission to this king? Day by day, week by week, in every sphere of your life, whether it's in your home, or whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your times of recreation, Young people, do you think in this way? Especially those of you who've made a profession of faith. Do you think about your life as, it's, the world will tell you, it's wide open, you choose. Follow your own arrow wherever it points. Or do you say, no, I belong to another. He has given me great freedom. I can choose this lawful job or that lawful job. I can choose this lawful wife or this lawful wife, but I'm not permitted to do whatever I wish. Young people, you're not, you're, when you're in the midst of dating and courtship, for example, you are not at liberty to say, well, I, I know she's not a Christian or I know he's not a Christian, but I really like her. You don't have that liberty. You have a duty to your king. When we indulge secret and private sins. We think, I can do whatever I wish. I'm not accountable. 
but we deceive ourselves. We have a king. And he has the right to rule us according to his word. The Puritans often spoke and used the phrase places and callings. That according to your places and callings, you may have different duties. If your place and calling is as a brother or sister in Christ to someone else, you have certain kingdom responsibilities to remind one another. Brother, you're not obeying the king. We see that worked out in in Matthew 18, for example. If one brother has sinned, another brother has a responsibility to go to him and say, you've sinned. You've broken the king's law. Will you hear not me, but the king, and, and, and respond appropriately and hear the voice of your king? If your places and callings is as an employee or an employer, do you think about your kingdom responsibilities? Do you think, what does it mean for me to serve my king as an employer? What does it mean for me to serve my king as an employee? If your places and calling is as a husband or a wife. Men, do you think in this way? What is my responsibility as a subject of King Jesus to serve my wife and my children? What are my responsibilities? What are my duties? What is the scripture laid upon me as a, as a duty? Do my children do my children just know that this is a kingdom-ordered home? Or do they think, Dad does whatever he wants to do? He's not bound to anyone. Wives, do you think is in your role as, as a wife, as a mother, that you're in submission to a king. The world will tell you, you can do whatever you wish. You can be it all. We said, no. My king has given specific instructions to me. Number one, he's made me a woman, not as a man. To the man, he's made you a man, not a woman. Our, our culture's gone mad in that issue, hasn't it? And some of those most, those basic things, we have to come back and say, this is, this is his right to rule in these ways. And for a man to shake his fist at God and say, I will not be a man. I will not do what men are designed to do. Or for a woman to say, I will not be a woman. I will not do what women are designed to do. It's a great offense to this God. It is contrary to the nature of his kingdom. According to your places and callings, if you're a parent, what are your duties? What are your responsibilities? And when you look at those little ones who by birth, by nature, as cute as they are. By nature, they're enemies of your king. They're at odds with the one you worship. And and I've spoken to many of you, I've I've spoken to a number of, of parents over the years, and some of the most basic things, a child thinks by birth, he is his own king. And he is free to speak when he wants to speak. And you have to remind him, no, you're not to permitted to speak whenever you want to speak or to say whatever you wish to say. A child by, by birth thinks he has a right to possess whatever he wants to possess, and he has the right to kill anyone who, to take it. Watch two three-year-olds with Legos. You take my Legos, it's a capital offense. I will kill you to get the Legos or the Barbie or whatever it is. And as parents, it's our job 
to create a worldview, a framework in which they see, no, I am not king here. I am not in charge. I don't get to do whatever I wish to do. And when we are faithful as parents to train them in these ways, teach them from the youngest of ages, if they have to subdue their flesh, they are not in charge. We are teaching them to think like kingdom citizens, even though they are not yet kingdom citizens. We can never train or discipline our children into the kingdom of heaven. We cannot do that. Amen? But we can teach them what submission looks like. We live in a culture that just chafes against the very idea of basic authority. It says, you are in charge, you follow your own heart, you do what you want to do, and how dare anybody tell you that you can't speak at this time or in that way, that you can't possess that thing, that you can't do whatever you want to do. And part of that is because we've had children who've never been told no. Or they've been told no, 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 no. But nobody ever meant it. If you're a child, kids, listen to me. You live in a world that isn't yours. You were born into a world that you don't run, you don't control. God in his wisdom has made you small to begin with, with little wisdom and little experience. And yet, by the means of your parents, by the means of the word of God, by the means of of the light of nature, the things that you can observe around you, he's growing you and he's shaping you. But you have a duty to conform yourself to that. See, by, by nature, children, you, you, you like to kick against the rules, don't you? I'm not a little kid anymore, and I still kick against the rules. That's, that's who we are by birth. But when you submit to your mother's instructions, when mommy says to do something and you do it, the first time she asks, when daddy gives you a, a direction and you do it, The first time he asks, you know what you're doing? You're training yourself. You're conditioning yourself to submit to another. And so young people, teenagers, as as you grow, and as your, your intellect grows, as your bodies grow, as your minds develop, as your wisdom grows, you will face a temptation regularly to think, I don't need to submit to my parents. After all, I've come to the place at the ripe age of 13 or 15 or 16 that I, I know more than they do anyway. There's no reason to submit to them anymore. Well, Mark Twain, that great theologian, once said that when I was a boy of 16, I was embarrassed at the ignorance of my father. But by the time I was 25, I, was, I stood in awe at how much the man had learned in such a short period of time. <laughs> According to our places and callings, what we think in, this king, in these kingdom ways, what we think about our duty to submit ourselves to this king, See, 
Sometimes it feels more satisfying to think I've got all this activity, all these, all these things that I'm doing to advance or grow or build or establish the kingdom, but I'm neglecting the things that are explicitly given to me. To announce the kingdom, to bear witness to it. To submit myself individually and corporately to obedience to the kingdom. Uh, Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung years ago wrote a book entitled, What's, What is the Mission of the Church? Uh, a group of men here have been through it a couple different times, and I commend it to you. But one of the observations they make is this. God certainly uses means and employs us in his work, but we are not makers or bringers of the kingdom. The kingdom can be received by more and more people, but this does not entail growth of the kingdom. We herald the kingdom and live according to its rules but we do not build it or cause it to grow because it already is and already has come. The point is that, biblically speaking, we as human beings may proclaim, enter, reject, inherit, and possess the kingdom, but it is God and God alone who establishes and ushers it in. It is God who will reconcile all things to himself through Christ. We should speak of the cosmic scope of what God himself will accomplish through the cross, through and through, his final consummation is God's work and for God's glory. As we've meditated upon Mark chapter 1 and the Lord Jesus' announcement that the kingdom is at hand, we, we've recognized that God governs his kingdom by establishing churches according to the mind of Christ as revealed in his word, according to the power of his Holy Spirit. He governs individual kingdom citizens through his word and by his indwelling spirit within us, and also through the outward and ordinary means that he's given to us in his churches. So if you're not already reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I implore you today, be reconciled to God. Do not think to yourself there's another way. Do not think to yourself that you will alone climb the holy mountain do not think to yourself that you will develop the wisdom and the skill and the goodness to inherit eternal life. Be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And if you are already a Christian, persevere in submitting yourself to the rule and the governance of this king. Consider your places and callings. In what ways has God placed upon you a particular responsibility and placed others in your care, in your oversight? What are your duties to one another with respect to this kingdom? Amen. We're here in just a moment. We're going to watch and witness a young man submit himself to King Jesus through the ordinance of baptism that very first act of obedience. Uh, there's nothing in the waters of baptism that save, but it is a sign of what Christ has already done inwardly. So let's, let's pray and ask for the Lord to implant the word that we've heard in our hearts. And also pray that our brother, uh, Caleb Rappoli, will live his life according to the covenant that he's making with King Jesus.
Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful that you've been so merciful to us. Uh, We thank you that your kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, is at hand. Lord, will you forgive us when we fail to live as kingdom citizens, when we forget the present reality of your kingdom, when we indulge our flesh, when we forsake our duties to one another, when we forsake the duties that you've given to us according to our places and callings, when we neglect the clear commands of our king. Forgive us when we seek our own way. Make it the joy of our hearts as we learn to delight in your law, to delight in the commands of Christ, to see these as good for us, as a blessing to us and for us. We pray now as we observe and witness together this ordinance of baptism. I pray for Caleb that as he looks back upon this day, he will recall the work of grace that you have already done in him and recall the fact that he has made a public commitment, a public vow to submit himself to you to follow the ordinances of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray for all of us here who have been likewise baptized according to the scriptures that you will remind us as we witness this ordinance that we too have made the same vow, that we too have been cleansed of our sin, that we too have the righteousness of Christ engrafted to us credited to our account, and that we would would seek to live according to his gracious rules. We ask this for his name's sake and for the good of all of your people. Amen.